He is risen. He is risen indeed. A little more enthusiasm. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday is our first, first week of the year when we encourage you to fast and pray. And in that blue outline that I gave you, there were some um, prayer requests, some, some ways to focus on that. And one of them was to pay attention. To pay attention to what God might say. Pay attention to what God might do. Let me encourage you, I put it in your outline there, to pay attention to what God might say and do following our week of prayer and fasting. Because our experience tells us that oftentimes the week of prayer and fasting um, set the tone and it becomes more of a launch pad for what, what God will do next. And so pay attention, write down what you're seeing and continue to lean into God. Capture those things that God wants you to, to pay attention and listen to. And then learning communities, we didn't meet last week. Wednesday, we had our prayer gathering. This week, we will start up again Thursday evening at 7, Friday at 1. Let me encourage you, if you haven't been a part of learning communities, to begin to create room in your schedule to do that. Because we're going to um, zero in on what it looks like to really be the church um, in the coming weeks. And then uh, uh, after a couple of weeks, we're going to do some um, discovery. We, we call it sh a shape training, which is discovering how God has created you to be a part of the body and to be more effective for him. So shape is what are your spiritual gifts? What's your heart? Um, what, your, what are your abilities, what's your personality type, what's your experiences that God has created in your life that he wants to empower by his spirit to use you in ways that you don't even know and, and wouldn't expect. So that's where we're headed. This is going to be a priority for us as we strive to be the church um, on mission and, and in every way. Lord, in the next few minutes, I pray again that you would ignite our hearts and our minds and our souls to hear your spirit, to see in a fresh way not only your resurrection, but what you want to do that, to live in our hearts, to live through us, for us to experience the life that you have for us. Lord, take us past the familiarity. Get us past the facts of the resurrection. Peel back misperceptions, traditions that may not be rooted in Scripture. To really grasp it, embrace it, absorb it, and become more like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the movie Risen, which came out probably seven or eight years ago, Clavius is a Roman tribune who 
happens to be in Jerusalem on uh, Good Friday. And he participates. He, he oversees some of the events of, uh, that were involved in crucifying Jesus. And he looks upon the cross and he sees this man that other people have claimed to be a king. And he watches him die. He's about, in this movie, he's about to have them break his legs when he hears Mary crying in the background, Jesus' mother, and, and according to the, and again, this movie, so according to the movie, he's motivated to allow them to pierce Jesus' side rather than break his legs. A couple of days later, Clavius is called into Pilate's, I don't know, courtroom, and given the task of getting to the bottom of this rumor that the body has been stolen. You see, the Jewish leaders discover that the body is gone. And so he's tasked with in this investigation to discover where the body is because he, the, the body has been somewhere. Jesus' followers knew that he had said that he was going to rise again and now the Jewish leaders say that they must have stolen his body. So Clavius goes with integrity. He's looking for the truth. He's following the path, trying to find out where the body of Jesus is because if they could produce the body, they can show the, the people that this, the body's there. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and they can avoid this uh, uprising by the Jewish people. And so he goes on this journey to try to find out where it is. And finally he ends up personally discovering the upper room where the 11 disciples and Mary Magdalene are gathered. And he kicks in the door and, he, and as it opens up he sees the disciples around and at the head of the table is the man that he had crucified. And he watches and, and I love the scene because you watch him drop his sword and stare. And he just watches as Thomas comes rushing in because in the movie evidently it's eight days later when Thomas shows up and, and Jesus giving him a hug and pointing to Thomas the scars in his wrists. And Clavius watches as Thomas puts his fingers in the holes in Jesus' wrists and and in the hole in his side. And in, in, without being able to comprehend what is happening, because he keeps flashing to the man on the cross and then seeing the man in the circle. And he knows it's the same one. And he walks over and, and he leans against the wall and, and, and just uh, slides against the wall until he is seated on the floor trying to make sense of all of this. And then Jesus disappears. And all the disciples are scurrying around, where did he go, where did he go? And Clavius, is, is, he watched him disappear into thin air. Something happens when we're confronted with facts that we can't make sense of. There's something that goes haywire in our brains and, and we try our best to use some point of reference to make sense of what is happening so that because we can't live with this dissonance within our, our minds, hearts, and souls. And that's what's pictured so well in this movie is Clavius is looking for truth 
and all he has to go on is this earthly reality, this physical reality, but he's coming face to face with spiritual reality, and he can't make sense of it. The rest of the movie is his quest to try to figure out what this is really all about. My prayer this morning is that God will use the truth that we are so familiar with and, and kind of energize it with a new, fresh look at um, the Easter story because everything changes with the resurrection. Amen. But it's not the facts of the resurrection alone. I put that foundational truth statement in there that we used last week with Palm Sunday is we can know the facts of the resurrection, but not grasp the implications, not grasp the spiritual ramifications and the consequences and the reality that we need to lean into. And so what I want to do is to read um, the account of the resurrection from this book. It's called Jesus, His Story. Um, an author some years ago took the four Gospels and um, created a, a narrative, a, one, a single narrative out of the four to try to capture the details of it. And, and it, causes, it, it caused me to read it in a, a little bit different way because as Randy alluded to, there's, uh, each one of the gospel writers identifies different parts of the story of the, of the resurrection. They don't contradict. They're just different aspects or characteristics. So, let me read. I put uh, some bullet points there in your outline so that you can follow along with the, um, the um, primary events of the resurrection story. So this is on the first day of the week before dawn, an angel rolls away the stone from before the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat down on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his garments were white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became as dead men. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might go and anoint Jesus. And on the first day of the week at early dawn, and try to put yourself in this story, try to imagine that you're walking along with the women to the tomb. And when they went, they said, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? But when they came within sight of the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And they went in and they found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Then Mary Magdalene hurried away to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus especially loved and said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we know, we know not where they have laid him. And the other women entered the tomb and saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right-hand side, and they were amazed and alarmed. So put yourself in their place. You're walking, and you see the tomb moved, and, and you know how big it is, and there aren't any guards around, and you walk in, and you see angels. And they were amazed and alarmed. Do not be afraid, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Well, yeah, that's who was in the tomb. Now, put yourself in their place when you hear these words. He has risen. He has risen. All their hopes 
Their dreams had been put into Jesus and they thought it all had died when he hung on the cross. And now they're just wanting to serve Jesus one last time to take care of his body and they confront angels. He's risen. (laughs) He is not here. See, here's the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he will go ahead of you into Galilee and you will see him there as he told you. And while they were still amazed by all of this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling garments and the women were afraid and bowed their faces to the ground. But these men said to them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. Every word in Scripture has a, has a purpose. And so it's not that these angels are just saying things that, for, for saying them. It was to ignite their remembrance because they remembered at that point. Out of Jesus' grace, he told them ahead of time. And now by the angels, they're reminded They remembered that he had said this, that he was going to be crucified. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. As the women went to bring the disciples his word, behold, Jesus met them saying, Hail! And they came and clasped his feet and they worshipped him. Do not be afraid, said Jesus. Go and tell my brethren that they are to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told the things to the disciples. But there were, now, this is one of my favorite. Their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they did not believe them. There's a whole group of women who saw angels and then saw Jesus and they go back to the disciples who should have believed, who should have remembered. And the, the men are going, the women are talking crazy talk. That doesn't happen in our day anymore, does it? <laughs> Peter and the other disciples set out for the tomb, hurrying along together. But the other disciple outran Peter and arriving first at the tomb, peered inside and saw the linen winding cloths lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside the tomb and saw the linen winding cloths lying there and the napkin which had been around his head. Not lying with the linen winding cloths, but wrapped around and round and lying in a separate place. Then the other disciple who had arrived at the tomb first went inside and saw these things and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture, how that it was necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. Peter couldn't believe. John did believe. But it was still confusing. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. And when the priests had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel... They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came at night and stole him away while we were asleep. And and if the governor hears of it, we will satisfy him so that you will have nothing to worry about. And they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this report has been circulated among the Jews to this day. 
On the same day, two disciples were on their way to the village of Emmaus, about 60 furlongs, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and were talking together about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, probably walking up from behind and began walking with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. What is this discussion that you're having as you walk along, said Jesus? They halted, looking very sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, said, You must be the only stranger in Jerusalem who has not known the things that have happened in these days. What things, asked Jesus. I love this. I love this story. Because Jesus comes to them and meets them right where they are. They're so confused. They don't know what's going on. They're so sad. Who knows why they're going to Emmaus. But they're walking along. Jesus joins them. He takes the initiative. He reaches in. He asks them questions he already knows the answer to in order to get them to have the discussion. And that's exactly what happens with us as we seek him, as we spend time on our knees and and follow the nudges, as we fast and we pray and we listen. That's what he does with us. He brings us to the place of understanding. But we have to be paying attention. And we have to be listening. We have to be willing to engage. And so Jesus joins them on this seven-mile journey. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, they said, a little um, perturbed. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we are hoping that he was the one who is to redeem Israel. And besides all this, now it's the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women of our company caused us much astonishment. They were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body and came back saying that they had a vision of angels who said that he is alive. Then some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And you can kind of hear in the words, the dismay and disbelief. All of these things that have happened don't make any sense. We're going to go on a walk. And Jesus' response, oh foolish men and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You'd think at that point their eyes would have been open. But no. Jesus knew that if their eyes were open too quickly and they recognized him too soon, they wouldn't hear what he had to say. Jesus is so kind in the way that he deals with us. Was it not necessary, Jesus goes on, for the Messiah to suffer these things before entering into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus appeared to be going on. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for the evening is at hand, the day is far spent. And he went in to abide with them, and as he sat at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Wait a minute. Just at the time we know who you are, we got questions. Jesus vanishes. His agenda, his lordship, not ours. Then they explained to one, exclaimed to one another, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and opened up the scriptures to us? And they got up from the table at once and hurried back. I'll bet they got back to Jerusalem quicker than they got to Emmaus. Amen. 
and found the eleven gathered together and others with them who exclaimed, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the road and how they recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. And as they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. It's what they needed here. Because when you're in the middle of circumstances that you don't understand, and it feels like God is not doing what he's promised to do, there's so much confusion that you can't understand until he gives you peace. Peace, settled confidence. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. It's like an angel, they thought at first. It's not really him. Why are you troubled, asked Jesus, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me, touch my wrists, touch my feet, touch my side, touch my, my forehead where the crown of thorns <laughs> penetrated. And see, touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still could not believe for joy this time, overcome by the wonder of it all, Jesus said, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said, to prove that he really had, it was the physical body. Because the spirit doesn't eat, but the body of Jesus did. These are the things I told you while I was still with you, that all the things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Can, and, and I can just imagine in that moment as he begins to explain it to them that, that the uh, tumblers in their brains begin to click into place. Oh, that's what he meant that, I, that he had to suffer. Oh, that's what he meant that he had to be crucified. That's what he meant when he said he had to die. That's what he meant when he said he would rise again. And he begins to click into place. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I will send the promise of the Father upon you. But tarry in the city until you are clothed with power from above. Then Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the Father sent me, so do I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all mankind. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas, and he gets a bad rap for this. Because the other ten didn't believe until Jesus showed up and ate the fish in front of them. And so Thomas wasn't there. He didn't see that. Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And God goes, okay, I'll take that as a challenge. 
And after eight days, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, peace be with you. He just appeared as if he'd been beamed from heaven. He just appeared. Then he said to Thomas, place your finger here. Not, I don't think it's scoldingly. I think it's very lovingly. Come here, Thomas. Let me give you what I already gave these other ten. Behold my hands. Take your hand and put it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believe. My Lord and my God, cried Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed, said Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But they are written that you may believe. They are written that you may believe. It's not just the facts of Easter. It's the faith that we put into the reality of truth. And so that, that's one of the reasons I love that movie is because Clavius is looking for the truth. He has the integrity of looking for the truth. He wants the information, but the reality has to be understood by giving us understanding from the Holy Spirit. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. I put a scripture in your outline. One more, um, just one more piece of the story we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And that's all, we know, that's the only scripture we, we have for that. But we know it's true. So not just the 11 and not just the women, but over 500 of his followers. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the story of the resurrection. That's the facts of the resurrection. And um, a lot of people know that in, in our culture. They know a lot of those facts of the resurrection. And, and people are gathered... More people today probably than any other day except maybe Christmas Eve in places that are called churches and, and they're doing the celebration of Easter Sunday, whatever that looks like in, in those places. So they know the information, they know the facts, but it's not enough to have the facts. We have to believe. And so I want to move to, from the true story of the resurrection, then I want to move to the responses to Jesus' resurrection. Because there are several different responses that we see in the story, and all of us fall into one of these three categories. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 32. Anybody need a Bible? We've got some Bibles in the back if you do. Anybody want a Bible? Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This is after Jesus has ascended to the Father, and the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, and Peter stands up in the same city that Jesus was crucified. And he proclaims 
to many of the same people who were there when Jesus was crucified, perhaps some of them who had called out to crucify him. And he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives this incredible message from God. And a part of the message, we pick it up in verse 32. He says, then Jesus, God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And he's talking about um, the, the great noise and, and the flames of fire and um, those that were in the upper room speaking in the languages of all the people that had come for the feast. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, not because Peter was a great preacher, but because the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to be convicted. Amen. And so the Holy Spirit is convicting, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And here it is. This is, this is the dividing line. This is the challenge to how we are going to respond. Peter said to them, repent, so you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You believe that the, he, the crucified one rose again. He went to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has been sent. You believe all of that, but it's not enough to believe the facts. You have accepted those facts. You're convicted by those facts, and you want to know what to do. Here's what you have to do. Here's what everyone has to do when they're convicted of those facts. It's not enough to gather in a building on Easter Sunday and sing the same songs and look at the same scriptures and have, have uh, lilies and whatever else they do in order to celebrate and, and experience the comfort and the satisfaction of the traditions that we grew up with and then go home and eat ham and whatever else we do. It, it's, it's not enough. That's the facts. But Peter says you have to move past the facts and you have to repent. Repent means to turn around, do a 180 from going your way to going his way. Amen. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So here's the response. Here's the response that Jesus is looking for. Here's the response that is depicted in the Risen movie with Clavius. Repent, believe, and turn away from your sin and follow Jesus. And so here are the three options. Believe the facts and follow Jesus as Lord. Believe the facts, repent, and follow. Because repent is to follow Jesus as, as Lord. Circle as Lord. Because there are a lot of people who gather and they say they believe in Jesus, but they're not following him as Lord. They may be following him as co-pilot. They may be following him as Savior, they think. But Jesus doesn't give us the option of following him in any other way except as Lord. If he is Lord, that means we don't have a choice to do what we want anymore. A Lord is a master. A Lord tells you what to do and you do it. That's the option. And that's what Jesus' followers did. They were witnesses and they combined. And so when the women went to the tomb, they saw the angel and then they saw Jesus and then Jesus came to the disciples, and they saw, they believed, and then 
They followed him as Lord. They did what he, he said, wait in Jerusalem. And they waited in Jerusalem. And then later he said, go. And they went. He said, proclaim my name. They proclaimed his name. They believed and repented. And I love it how God caught, even before the Holy Spirit came, God caused them to remember the things that Jesus had said so that they could believe. Now, I want you to hear me on this. The scripture is very clear. It says he loves all men, all people. And it's his desire that all be saved. And so God is doing all he can in every one of our lives to reach into our lives, to draw us to himself. You only, you only go to hell over Jesus' dead body. Taking the punishment for yourself. And so his believers, or his followers said, yes, he is Lord. Following Jesus as Lord, not as a fan, but as Lord, willing to lay down our lives. Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to that. So very, the relatively few will actually ever make that choice. There's another choice that we see in this account, and that is to believe the facts, but refuse to follow. Believe the facts, but refuse to follow. This is comical when you begin to look at what happened with the soldiers and the Jewish leaders. So for Matthew 28, I want you to put yourself in the place of the Jewish leaders. And here's, here's what it records. The Roman soldiers come to you as one of the Jewish leaders, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the people who had um, held the kangaroo court trial of Jesus and sent him to the cross. These Roman soldiers don't go to Pilate. They go to the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders hear their story. Here's the story of probably between 8 and 16 Roman soldiers, soldiers who are highly trained, probably battle-hardened, not really afraid of much. And they, on that night, they're posted there, probably thinking, this is the stupidest thing that we've ever done in our entire life. We're guarding the tomb of a dead person against, uh, against people who have no fighting. I mean, what? this is ridiculous. And so they're there. And on that morning, it says, they report to the Jewish leaders an earthquake. We're there, which means they're awake, right? They're awake. There's an earthquake. And then they say these Jewish leaders, caused by an angel of the Lord descending from heaven. And I can imagine these Roman soldiers, are, as, as they're on their way, the Jewish leaders are going, who's going to tell? I'm not saying this, this may, because this is going to sound so ridiculous when we say it out loud. They go to the Jewish leaders. There's an angel came down, rolled back the stone. His appearance, and, and he sat on the stone. His appearance was like lightning. It was, his clothes were white as snow. And we, as Roman soldiers, the best soldiers in the world, were so afraid by this that we passed out. Roman soldiers fainting in the face of anything doesn't make sense. Now, you see why they didn't go to Pilate. Because he's not going to believe any of this. The Jewish leaders believed it. They didn't deny that it happened. How can you deny it? You got 8 to 16 
Roman soldier standing in front of you, all telling you the exact same thing. And with your background in the Old Testament, you know angels are real. And you know God does earthquakes. And you know God does the supernatural. So you're going, oh, this, this is real. And here's what baffles me is most, there's a few. History tells us there's a few of those Jewish leaders from the Sanhedrin that actually did believe. But most of them, instead of believing, they listen to these soldiers and they're aware of the promise that Jesus made that he would rise again. They're aware and they could never refute the miracles that Jesus had done. And now they have a decision to make. The rational, not, not just spiritual, the rational decision is to say, oh, no. We got that completely wrong. Is that what they did? Nope. They believed the facts. But their response was not to admit that they'd done anything wrong, which, because that would sacrifice all of their power, all of their position, everything that they'd worked for all of their lives, they would lose if they were going to follow Jesus. And so instead, they did what many have done throughout the ages when confronted with the truth of Jesus. They are more concerned with holding on to what they have than embracing the truth. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we do that. Mm -hmm. When God comes to us and he puts his finger on something, here, here's how it looks like for me. God says, okay, um, Herb, you know, you're, there's still another layer of stuff that you need to surrender here. And, and my response is, no, I don't. <laughs> well, I, I've already done that, God. I've, and in that moment, I'm doing the same thing that these Pharisees did. I'm denying the truth of what God is revealing. You were wrong. You know, when you talked to Sheila that way, you were wrong. No, I wasn't. I was right. God, God says, no, you were wrong. No, let me, God, let me explain this to you. Do you know how ornery this woman that you gave me is? Let me explain this. And God's going, just shut up. The only thing I want to hear is, God, you're right. I repent. That's it. But that's, they were not about to do that. And so they knew the truth, but instead they, held, they tried to hold on. And so they created a cover-up with lies and more lies and secret payments and bribes in order to try to hold on to what they had. Number three, you can suspend rational thinking and refuse to follow. You can so the Jewish people, or the Jewish leaders, knew the truth. They knew these soldiers were telling the truth. They paid them off. They created a cover-up. Or, and this is what has happened throughout the ages, the footnotes in this book, oops, footnotes in this book um, state the, that lie, the lie that, uh, and so the, the lie that the Jewish leaders told the soldiers to per perpetuate was um, his followers came during the night while you were asleep, which would have cost them their career, probably their lives, the, the, the soldiers. But they came while you were asleep and stole his body. That's the lie. 
And, and, and so in the footnote it says, this lie that has been perpetuated throughout the years requires ignoring evidence a thoughtful person would, give in, would, would believe and accept. And so here's the soldier's false report. As with most cover-ups, the logic falls apart. So here's, if the soldiers were asleep, they wouldn't know who took the body. You know, this is, right? You begin to ask those questions. Well, who took the, how do you know who they took the body? If you were, um, if they were awake and they could identify them, why wouldn't they just stop them? To admit they fell asleep was to destroy their career and possibly face death because it was capital offense. So this lie is not going to, it's not going to make sense unless that's what you really want to believe. And it still doesn't make sense. You just choose to believe it. And then, the, and then, in addition to the lie falling apart, the disciples' commitment only makes sense if Jesus is risen. So again, from the footnotes, it says, beyond the cover-up, our experiences with human nature cause us to realize, why would Jesus' followers endure rejection, persecution, and death for a lie? Now remember, there were over 500 who saw him. Rather than experiencing favor with the world or material wealth by promoting this lie and living this lie, instead it would result in Jesus' followers being regarded with disdain, abuse, and horrible persecution. It's completely unreasonable to believe they left their homes, businesses, family, friends, comforts to expose themselves to hardships, ridicule, persecutions, flogging, imprisonment, and martyrdom to perpetuate the name and memory of a leader who had deceived them, an imposter who promised to return from the dead and did not deliver. And then you go, yeah, that just makes sense. Why would a group of people do that? Only absolute confidence in the reality that Jesus had risen from the dead confirmed by his personal experience, appearance to them could have sustained them through the next decades of abuse, sacrifice, and suffering. Not only for them individually, but to watch their loved ones endure the same. And for all of them to maintain the same account and not one surrender their hope for eternity. So you have to suspend rational thinking um, in the early 1970s, um, our country experienced the Watergate scandal. Those of you that are old like me were alive then, and you remember all of that. The Watergate scandal was, um, and it was really the cover-up that was the problem. So President Nixon and 10 or 12 of the most powerful men in the entire world decided they were going to cover up this crime. Chuck Colson was one of those. He was special assistant to President Nixon, his hatchet man. He went to prison for seven months, accepted Jesus Christ, and developed an incredible prison ministry. And, and now the Colson Center and Breakpoint.org came out of his salvation. And, he, and, and so I quote him. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, that they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So those are the choices that we have. Either we repent and follow Jesus, believe the facts, repent and follow Jesus, or we believe the facts and just decide we're not going to follow him, or we, in our effort to make sense of things, we suspend rational thinking in order uh, to deny that reality and do what we want. But, all, but not only what Colson says, but throughout the ages, there have been people who have decided they were going to investigate Christianity and prove it false. In their minds, they're thinking, if, if you just get to the truth of it, if you just get underneath to the, the reality of it is, it's going to fall apart. And one by one, instead of discovering that it's false, they accept Christ as Savior. Amen. People like C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell. So that brings us to the third chapter, or the final chapter of Jesus' resurrection. And that is, the choice that we make leads to the consequences that we experience. Mm -hmm. We choose our choices, but we don't get to choose our consequences. We live in a world where we want to choose what we want to do and also choose what the consequences of those actions are going to be. So I want to choose, and, and so that phrase, we want to have our cake and eat it too, right? So I want, to, I want to eat my cake, but I want the cake to still be there tomorrow when I wake up. Or I want to eat my cake and never, and never gain any weight. I want to buy a membership to the gym and not go, but the fact that I have bought the membership will make me healthy. Right? I want to I treat the people in my life horribly, but then I want them to love me anyway. I want to be able to choose my choices and choose what those consequences will be, but we don't have that choice. We can only choose our choices. And there are consequences that you can't get away from, from each one of those choices. Matthew chapter 25. Flip over there in your Bibles. I want to start with verse 31, where Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And he says, there are going to be two groups of people on that day. In Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in this passage, they say, well, how do we do that? And he says, by the actions that you took, because you repented and you followed me as Lord, your life re re revealed that. Then jump down to verse 41. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, 
you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the final chapter of Jesus' resurrection is not that he's alive, or not even that he ascended back to the Father, not even that he sent the Holy Spirit. The final chapter of the resurrection is that Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the, all people. And there are only two choices. There are only two consequences. For those who believe and put and understand the facts and believe and repent and follow him, then it's abundant life here and eternal heaven later when Jesus judges all. For those who refuse to follow Jesus, even if they believe the facts. And there are a lot of people in our culture who believe the facts. And because they think it's an academic exercise, it's, it's just an intellectual nodding your head, but they're not following Jesus, they will be told, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or for those who just refuse to believe the facts, and follow Jesus, they will hear the same. So those are the two consequences. And that's the final chapter of the resurrection. The resurrection was to set up everything that would come next. It was to begin to restore all things. And that's what he's doing now. Jesus only appeared to his followers, which I find interesting. <laughs> he never appeared to any of those who were against him. If it was me, I think I would have taken a detour over to Pilate going, I told you. You want to know whose truth? It's me. Or to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And in a period of saying, I'm back. But Jesus never did that. He appeared to his followers because his motivation is always love. So when he tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him, it's out of his love. It's not out of scolding. Amen. But we need to be realistic. Celebrating the resurrection, celebrating Easter Sunday, does nothing except become a social event unless we put our full lives into his hands. Amen. And we follow him. And when we, but when we do, we can look forward to that. And so let me go back to the first consequence. If we follow Jesus, it means abundant life that Jesus promised here now, I'm not talking about things. I'm talking about the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, all the fruit of the Spirit that He places in us, the satisfaction of experiencing His presence, the being drawn into His presence as we worship, praise, fast, pray, serve Him, and experience that His presence is with us, which is deeper and stronger and better and more pleasurable than anything this world can ever offer. That's the abundant life. And then, if you, it's as if God says, and if you think that's good, just wait for heaven. Amen. Because when you get to heaven, I will be with you, and you will be my people, and I will wipe away every tear from your eye. And every pleasure that you've ever experienced here will be magnified by more times than you can ever imagine. That's what I offer you. And that's why I went to the cross. And that's why I was resurrected. And that's why I went to the Father. And that's why I sent the Holy Spirit. And that's why you should repent and follow me. He is risen. And it brings tears to my eyes. 
Because we have no idea the depth of love that he still wants to pour out on us. If we can just lean into him, if we can listen to him, if we can believe that when he says repent, when he, when, if we can believe that when he says, Herb, you need to apologize to your wife, it's because he loves me. He loves Sheila more. <laughs> but it's because he loves us. And he wants us to experience that. Would you bow your heads? As we've been talking this morning, is there anything the Holy Spirit might have put his finger on where he's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn. You need to surrender. You need to trust. You're holding on to this. Are you refusing to obey me here? If the resurrection tells us anything, it's that he's not only all-powerful, but he's all-loving. And those are invitations to experience him more, not to be scolded and taken to the woodshed. So I encourage you, if he's doing that, and I have a confidence that he's speaking to all of us in some way, shape, or form, if you lean into that, you experience the life, the resurrected life, even more on this Easter Sunday than you ever have before. Then when we go to be with our families or, or whatever the rest of the day holds, there'll be greater joy, greater peace, a greater sense of his presence, which is what he really desires. So in this moment, would you say, Lord, I do surrender. I give myself to you. Whatever you put your finger on, I will do. No matter how hard. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us a greater understanding of who you are and, and what it means to live in step with you. On this resurrection day, God, drive it home. Keep it in front of us. Peel away all the things that compete with the reality of what you did on this greatest day of history. I pray for us as a church family, a church army, a church body, as we go forward, that your resurrection life would take even deeper hold to make us what you want us to be so that just like those early followers who couldn't stop talking about you, couldn't stop loving in your name, that would be us, that the world will know. We praise you, we bless you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.